0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of OD Wire Radio. Uh, it's Adam Farkas here with Paul Farkas. Hi, all. And today we have a return guest. It's Dr. Stephen Nelson, who's coming back today to talk to us all about medical billing. And if you heard Dr. Nelson's other show, you remember that he's practicing in a variety of places and situations. Um, but one of the big takeaways that we got from his initial interview was, was that you can do medical billing. It is possible, even in a commercial setting, to actually get medical billing done. And so we invited Stephen back here today to talk more about medical billing and how to make the transition, how to actually get it
1: done. So Stephen, thanks so much for being with us here today. And, when, Hi, and also just everyone pay attention because I learned from one optometrist uh, that listening to Steve, uh, his gross last year increased by $80,000 so maybe you're listening for the next uh, period. There, you're gonna. It's gonna be very worthwhile for you. Wow. Okay, even I'm gonna. Well, list, I'm gonna pay attention then. It's,
2: you know, and that's a fact. And I don't say that that wasn't an estimate. That was what they told me. My personal experience was that my my net, and I think it's important to make that distinction. It's all net here. Went up seven, a little over seventy thousand. He had a little more patient volume than I did, so he so he wins. You know. But in in talking to a good friend of mine, Eric Botts, who's been on the forum from time to time, he does a really, really good kind of soup to nuts seminar on on the mechanics of the billing and what documentation is required, that kind of thing. He says the average of the doctor that makes these changes is around 80 grand, too. So apparently, it's kind of just a, you know, assuming you've got a relatively full schedule, it's a seemingly constant number.
0: Right. And in fact, you know, my first question was going to be, why should the doctor make the transition to medical billing? But I think you've already answered that.
2: <laughs> well, actually, you know, I, I, that's one reason. I mean, money is one reason, but it's not the only reason. There are a lot of other, to me, deeper reasons. I mean, everybody likes money, and, and that's sort of the hook. But the rest of it is important, too, because, you know, th- these medical coding terminologies that we use, this is what the rest of medicine uses. This is what every other doctor kind of uses. So when when we try to have conversations with them, you know, it's nice to have a common language that we can use. So, you know, I think that's important. I think it's also important to keep optometry kind of interesting. And, and as complicated as this seems, it is kind of interesting. It's like Sudoku, except you get paid for it, because all of your charts have to fit in just right. And, you know, it's is probably the wrong word for it, but, you know, it is interesting rather than just checking a box eye exam.
1: And, and so, just, just to open up the closed minds of, of some of the optometrists that have always had primarily an optical type of practice. Uh, yes. You know, and, uh, and they just, you know, they're, they're listening, but they're not listening. Uh, how do we get them to be, become believers? Do they have to wear surgical scrubs in the practice with a <laughs> stethoscope over their, over their shoulder?
2: Is that, uh, what, can, what can you do? I'm, I'm so happy that you said that because that was actually the next point I was going to make. Um, and this is just totally my opinion. And I know nothing about nothing, but my opinion is looking at the optical market, looking at the changes in even what the vision plans and everybody else is trying to do, I think that the days of getting rich off of the optical. I think those days are kind of coming to a close. I mean, the the entire trending is going towards lower fees toward materials. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but for me, I think the future of optometric viability is in our professional services. That's where we're going to survive, because at, at that point, if we can get into this, make a bigger entrance into medical billing, we'll be sort of the middle buffalo, because all of the doctors, it's not just somebody chipping away at optometry. They're chipping away at all doctors because all MDs use 99 codes. So if they hit us and we've got good physician standing, well, they've hit everybody. So we actually fight with the AMA for once, which is kind of a refreshing change. But but taking that out of the equation, even if I'm just totally dead wrong and, and optical remains really viable and really profitable, that's great. But if you can add thirty or forty dollars per person to your professional fees, you know, net revenue on top of it, there's no reason to not do that. Because you can do both. There's no reason to have to choose. And I say that on, on ODWire all the time. You know, there's not a there's no reason for it to be a vision model or a medical model. Because glaucoma patients need glasses. I mean they still want to see. You know, your cataract patients, they don't walk in four plus NS and, and, you know, get preaged immediately to surgery. You know, they're going to walk around for, they could walk around for a decade before they're a surgical candidate. They still need to see. So why would you not, for example, just to throw the cataract patient out there, why would you not bill that to Medicare and get paid 120 for that exam and then an extra 40 for, you know, for the refraction? And they're paying you 25 So for them, it's a no-brainer, especially for, for those kinds of fees. And when you compete against doctors that aren't doing it, they call, say they call my office. Well, how much is an eye exam? Well, what's your insurance? Well, I have Medicare. Have you met your deductible? Yes. Well, it's going to be $25 plus the refraction, which is whatever, 40, say 40. So 65 bucks versus calling some other practice in there, 85 or 90 cash. You know, they're actually going to pay me less out of pocket, and I'm going to get paid more. And then there's still the material split on top of that. So, you know, I, I think for the the heavy optical guys, I think they need to, you know, just to address Paul's question a little more directly, they need to look toward the future of where their fees are going, where their optical reimbursements are going, and say, do I want to hedge all my bets on this one thing? Right. So, I mean, that's that's the best answer I can get. So,
0: it's a diversification strategy, so you may Absolutely. as well roll the dice and see. But here's the question, then. So, I, if you've never done medical billing before... So, sort of mechanistically, how do you get started doing it?
2: Okay, the the first thing to do really is to get on a website uh, called the Council for Affordable Quality Healthcare. It's www.caqh.org, and what they are is they're an independent online credentialing body. So, you get on there, you get a CAQH number, and and it basically runs you through an exhaustive credentialing process, but What's great about that is they will send that information to the insurers so that once you're, you're what's called attested and you've submitted your malpractice proof and your license and your DEA and your DPS and yada, 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 all these things, they will actually send that information to Blue Cross Blue Shield and to Humana and to United so that the credentialing process is essentially a lot more streamlined. So step one is to get on CAQH and get that credentialing done. Now, the one the one important sort of outlier from that is Medicare. Medicare doesn't use it, they've got their own thing. Fill out the Medicare credentialing packet first, because they will be the slowest. They will take the longest. They will take anywhere from three to six months to get the credentialing done. So basically you just call Medicare and or you can actually download those forms. Download the credentialing packets, fill them out, send them in. That's step one.
0: Right. And so you wait and you wait and you wait. And then finally, what happens?
2: Well, the waiting isn't exactly quite as passive as as just sitting around waiting because there's a lot of staff training that you need to do. There, There's some – it's not complicated, but there are a lot of semantics changes that have to happen in the practice. I'll get to that in a minute. But basically what happens is you will get a letter or you'll get a contract from whomever, um, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, and and don't ever shut out Medicaid because Medicaid, if you're allowed to file medically on Medicaid, it can be a wonderful boon to your practice. It's not necessarily the patient base everybody craves, but I mean there are a lot of doctors out there making a fortune off of Medicaid. So it's just I throw that out there. But you'll get a number, and at that point you are a credentialed provider, and you know it'll. It, What's nice about that is not only are you able to file the claims, but generally speaking, they will put your name in their provider manual. Right. So it's sort of uh, unanticipated marketing, too.
0: And, and just to interrupt you for a second, if anyone who's listening to this, you'll know that the two previous radio shows before this one that you're listening to were with Gil Weber, a uh, consultant on OD Wire, and he actually goes into deep detail on how to negotiate managed care contracts. So after you've sort of taken away Stephen's advice, you might want to go back and re-listen to Gil's piece um, to make sure that that you're getting yourself into the best position possible. So yeah, sorry, sorry absolutely. for my little interruption there, but uh, I think it's an important. No, no, question.
2: that's a good one because I I I don't really want to go into the into how to do that stuff because there are people much better at it than me. Sure. So. So, so I
0: guess then that you you know you hit on semantic changes and stuff. What is the difference between a medical exam and an eye exam?
2: There is in. A medical exam, what's called an HPI, it's a history of present illness. And that applies to any examination you do, okay? And it's the I in that that makes it a medical exam. Basically, what makes it a medical exam is the cognitive work you have to do and invest into the examination to do a proper assessment. You know, and and it's all driven by medical decision-making. So, you know, for for me, I say a medical exam is created by a combination of chief complaint, findings, history, and diagnoses. Those, those things, you sort of combine them together and you figure out what kind of exam it is. And, you know, for example, a diabetic, there's more involved cognitively than a 20-year-old healthy person with no history, just one contacts. context. You know, they're, they're not the same exam. They're not the same level of cognition required. You're not looking for the same things. They're not at risk for the same things. You know, basically, the minute you have to question in your head sequelae of something, it's a medical exam. Even if it's hypertension, I mean, hypertension has has ocular ramifications, and you have to run through, okay, what what medications are you on? Is your hypertension controlled? Things like that. So, you know, short story is anything outside of I've just got myopia and no history, to be honest. And from that point, it's just a matter of degree how complicated is it. Is it a level three? Is it a level four? Is it moderately complicated? Is it horrifically complicated? But almost every exam we do to a degree is medical. And the thing that will push it over the edge is, you know, kind of how you document that as well.
0: Right. And so, uh, so here's, here's my question to you then. Does this mean that you actually have to become an expert in this wide variety of diseases if they have an ocular manifestation, even if they haven't, you know, actually had any symptoms yet? Is that still a, no. a medical exam?
2: Not at all. I mean, even, you know, and, and I, I sort of battled this out with one of the posters about, you know, doctors that don't treat and doctors that don't do this. You cannot treat a doggone thing. You can be an, an expert in exactly nothing and still do this because even the most elementary optometrist is a great diagnostician. You still know if they're diabetic, that there's stuff you got to look for and and your therapeutic level doesn't change their presentation. So no, you don't have to be an expert. You can, you know, you don't have to be an expert for them to tell you they're diabetic. You know you have to you have to you have to document a little bit differently and you have to get away from the concept of an eye exam because eye exams don't exist. There's no such thing as an eye exam because an eye exam, can be a 20-year-old one contacts with no problem. An eye exam can be a, a glaucoma patient coming in with cupped-out CDs and a central corneal ulcer. They're both eye exams, but they're not the same exam. So you've got to kind of differentiate between a wellness and then varying level levels of medical. You don't have to be an expert, but you have to be able to point to it and say, well, this is a 92004, and that's not hard. I mean, basically... Medicare puts out the CMS guidelines, and every insurer follows that. And I mean, you can look it up. I mean, it's it's really not that complicated,
0: right? And actually, you're, so, you're starting you're starting to hit on another thing as well. You know, you mentioned the codes. How do you actually determine your fees, your your billing fees for each one of these codes?
2: Well, there are a couple of strategies to come up with fees. Okay, and and you have to be careful because you don't want to tell anybody what to charge. But these are some guidelines there are you know what what a lot of people do is they'll download the medicare fee schedule for whatever their area is and go by that because the thing is everything is all a cart now i mean everything is all a cart a refraction is separate fundus photos separate uh, it, virtually everything is separate the exam has a component and then every little thing you do beyond that so you know, how do you know what to charge for removing a foreign body? I don't know. I just charged $100 for the whole exam before. Well, you don't do that anymore. So look at the Medicare guidelines, see what they pay for that. And you can go by that. The more common way to do it, and this is across the board for physicians in general, not this isn't just an optometry thing, but one thing that you can do is look at all of the medical payers for your area that you're going to want to get on which is going to be the biggie, it's going to be Humana, it's going to be United, it's going to be Blue Cross, because those are sort of everywhere, and, and see what the highest payer for each one of those is, and add a certain percentage to that. And that way you're not leaving money on the table, because you don't want to set your fee for a, for a, I mean, for a level 4 exam at 120 if Blue Cross pays 148
0: Right. And, uh, because
2: they'll only pay the, the lesser of either what you bill or what they're willing to pay.
0: Right. And I'm going to actually throw out a little plug here for a company that they're, they're not actually advertisers on ODY and they're not sponsors, but we, we worked with them for a long time, iCore. Um, and this is a yeah. software company that makes a package where they have folks in their offices who do nothing but keep up on the, the, the payments and, and the, latest, uh, the latest codes as well. So it's a piece of software where you pull the codes up and it'll tell you uh, what people are actually paying in, in your local area as well.
2: Because I had, when my biller looked over my my amount, she's like, "Why are you charging this?" And I was, I, I don't know, because I because that's what I had been. Well, you need to jack that up about forty dollars. Oh, uh, uh, okay. So the only caveat that I would mention to that, and I I think it doesn't really matter, but I but I feel like I should mention it. Whatever you charge is going to show up on somebody's EOB. So you don't want to charge ten thousand dollars for an eye exam because you know, that'll that'll cover everybody. You don't want to do that because then you're going to have patients call and saying, "Why are you charging my insurance ten thousand dollars?" Because they're not going to understand. It doesn't matter what I charge. What matters is that part that says paid to provider. And I mean, I and I'll tell you my fee because for a nine two, nine, nine two, zero, four, I bill out at one seventy five because my highest payer I think is one forty eight or something. Anyway, um, I got chewed out by a patient who called me up and said, why are you billing $175? That's ridiculous, blah, 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 blah. It turns out they didn't pay me for that exam. Medicare, Medicare didn't, they didn't actually pay me anything. So I got, you know, I got a copy of the EOB and I said, ma'am, you don't need to look at the part that says billed. You need to look at the part that says paid to provider. Well, that says zero. I said, yeah, it sure does. I'm so glad you called. <laughs> right. So,
1: so Steve, uh, other than Medicare, are there situations where you do not accept assignment and just give a patient a super bill and let them worry about collecting?
2: Not really. I don't. There are doctors that do. And there is an, ins, sorry, there's an insurance that I don't particularly like. Humana doesn't pay me all that well. And, and I've considered just saying, look, here is your out of network form, feel free to, I've filled it out for you. Go ahead and mail this in. And you can do that. You can do that, but it's, you're sort of, you're sort of hedging your bets. You're, you're you're kind of assuming that a patient will be willing to private pay you what they can pay a copay in somebody else's office for. So yeah, you can, you can absolutely do that. I don't just because I don't, I don't want to play that game. You know, if I'm going to accept their insurance, I'm going to do it. But, yeah, you can do that.
0: Right. So I guess then this brings us to another point. Um, how do you have your staff present this new fee structure or handle people who are shopping on the phone? Because I guess ultimately this is, <laughs> this is what it comes down to, right? Patients are going to come in, and they're you don't want them to be confused by this or surprised. So how do you actually handle this?
2: Well, let me let me preface this by saying that I made this transition at Walmart. So no one has had to be more conscious about that probably than me. And I did it and I did it from, you know, I mentioned in the previous segment that everything I've learned, I've learned by doing it wrong. This was one of the wrongs. Um, you know, I had a one size fits all exam fee. How much is an eye exam? Oh, it's $65. Oh, great. And it didn't matter what you have. So I had to change everything up because all of a sudden my regular eye exam was 85 and my, if you had hypertension, it might be 120 plus refraction. So you don't want people getting terrified when they call your office because they'll call your office and say, how much is an exam? Oh, I don't know. It might be 85. It might be 185. I don't know. And then they call the other guy. Oh, it's 60. So what, what I did is I wrote up a script for the staff. First of all, I went into sort of an exhaustive lecture, and i it's kind of funny. I entitled it Medical Insurance, the Other White Meat. And I went into this long, detailed PowerPoint presentation, and I actually quizzed them, you know, so that they would understand the differences between what the exams mean and when people call, what are they really asking? You know, and and we came up with, after several sort of failed attempts to come up with something good, came up with a script where they would say a routine wellness evaluation starts at 85 But before all of that, the patient would call up and say, how much are your eye exams? And they would say, well, what insurance do you have, both vision and medical? they say, well, I don't have any vision insurance. Okay, well, what is your major medical carrier? Well, they don't cover vision. And you do this dance until finally you say, okay, when you get sick and you go to the doctor, what card do you hand them? Oh, I hand them my blue cross. And then you just, you know, well, it'll be your specialist copayment is generally $40 you know and then they think well that's great i'm only going to pay 40 bucks which is true you know there there are some plans that have deductibles and you know you kind of have to bring that into the equation depending on which plan they have but most of the time it's going to be a specialist copay so you can tell them it's going to be 40 bucks
1: so do, do you ever have the staff ask the patient well what sort of visual problem are you having never Never, never do that. Never. Right?
2: Okay. Well, it depends. If they, if they when, they, when they would make an appointment, if it was something like, we would ask them if they're, you know, is it an emergency, that kind of thing, but never get into what kind of problems are you having, yada, yada, yada. I, I just, I don't like that because I don't think that even the most competently trained staff is going to be as good as I am at that. And, you know, you're talking about a couple of minutes when they come in. I'd rather just dig for that myself. So would you give the staff a prepared
1: script? Or do you you let them
2: wing it? Uh, Until they're comfortable, yeah. Until they're comfortable, give them a script. And, you know, at the bottom of the script, if this, you know, if something comes up that you don't have an immediate easy answer for, ask them Mm -hmm. to hold and come get me.
0: You know, that you just gave me a really good idea. I think on wire what we should do is maybe collaboratively all come up with an algorithm that might make sense for people. Um, because I think that for a lot of young folks especially, this might be a really daunting process, and it's certainly not something that you're taught in school. Um, so maybe yeah. that might be a good idea.
2: Yeah, it's you know, the thing is, it's intimidating for no good reason. And when you get on the backside of, of the learning curve, you think, wow, I was worried about that. I mean, it's uncomfortable for about... Twenty minutes <laughs> I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I mean you're going to practice for twenty years, minimum, you know, probably more like forty because we're optometrists, and as long as we're not you know thinking we're Napoleon, we can generally pull optometry off pretty well, so I mean you're talking about a lifetime earnings that's just astronomically different, so it's it's worth whatever whatever it is whatever learning curve is required for you and most people within a month or two you know they're they're more comfortable with it
0: sure so i guess uh,
2: yeah
0: so yeah so i guess then how do you avoid the arguments then um you know you, you know you, you always see this at least on ody over and over again it's you know how come you know vsp is not covering this yeah. why is this covering this you know the difference between medical and and vision is confusing yeah. even for educated patients
2: <laughs> yeah, it it is. And for doctors, too. Don't get me wrong. Look at, you know, look at our arguments. I mean, we can't agree on anything. But, I, you know, for me, it's being proactive. That was what that again, learning the hard way. You know, we would tell patients when they checked in. We need both your vision and your medical insurance card. Well, what do you need that for? Well, because we can't know. What your findings are going to be until after the exam, we're going to verify both, and we'll do everything we can to put it where it needs to be. And then there was also a form that I had an intake form, and I think I got that uploaded on the form, but it, you know that says vision versus medical insurance, and it it outlined it. It said many of our patients have both medical and vision insurance. It's important to know what cover you know what's covered and what co- what's not covered, and you know blah, blah, blah. you know if you have any significant medical history, hypertension, well, I wrote high blood pressure because, you know, they never know, uh, diabetes or any type of ocular disease, you know, I listed them out, you know, this visit will be going to your medical insurance. And I, and I made no bones about it. I, I, <laughs> I took the coward's way out. I had right on there, please understand that these are the insurance company's rules, not my rules. And because we take medical insurance, we are bound by those rules. So, you know, and, and, if patients, you know, if they would get mad, they were going to get mad before I ever examined them. And, and and I'll be honest with you, I did lose patients. I lost probably 10% of my patients. But losing 10% of my patients and making $70,000 net more, that's kind of win-win. Because what you end up doing is you end up culling patients out of your practice that are really not that productive.
1: Right. So, so do you think a, a... The future warm and cuddly vision insurance plans Uh, should you do a better job of educating the patients what vision insurance is? uh,
2: You know, I I don't know. I don't honestly care because they're in business. They're going to do things their way, and they're in business for them. They're not in business for us. You know, and that's kind of the rub with VSP and stuff. You know, everybody's like, oh, that's our friend. No, they're not your friend. They don't care about you. They couldn't care less about you, and if you went out of business tomorrow – they would with the guy that took your space. So I, I don't think – the only thing that I would want vision insurances to do is to just not try to misrepresent themselves. I don't need them to say what will go where, but just don't tell the patient that they're medical insurance. That's all. You know, don't tell the patient that they're a primary. Don't tell the patient, for God's sake, don't tell them their diabetic exam is covered, IMED. You know, don't just don't don't misrepresent what they are. I don't need them to try to help me out. I just need them to not, you know, not misrepresent the services they're they're designed for. Because the thing is you can still use like a patient that comes in with Aetna and Aetna pays wonderfully. But you can do you know, you can put their examination on their Aetna Medical and their materials on IMED. So you can still use both. I mean, there's no reason to, you know, for the vision plan to get the shaft I mean their original design was for materials we've just sort of allowed them to evolve into all-inclusive optometry plans.
0: Right okay so let's switch gears here then now let's say that you've done it you've trained your staff You have the patient who's happy and accepted what it is that you've done with their insurances. You've seen the patient. Now let's talk about documentation. You know, I mentioned iCOR before, and part of what what their software does is help you document and, and get it right. How do you actually get the documentation right to make sure that you're reimbursed?
2: Okay, well, the first thing you need to understand is the concept of the chief complaint, and we argue about this constantly. But the chief complaint is a brief statement in as close to the patient's own words as possible, describing their state of being. What is their problem? Never, ever, ever write broken glasses on a record because you're not examining the glasses. The chief complaint of of the glasses is that, yes, they are broken, but the chief complaint of of the patient is that I can't see. I require this device, but I'm here because I can't see. And then you, you document blurry vision. Where is it blurry? Well, I can't see far away. Oh, okay, you know, you're minus six. You're not supposed to. And, you know, you document as if glasses are not part of the equation. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm saying document as if it's not. Because what will end up happening is you're more accurately describing the patient's complaints, their actual complaints. What is my problem right now? You're describing that accurately. And then at the end of the exam, it leaves you the flexibility. You know, if you look at that patient and you say, okay, well, you came in with blurry vision. The only thing you've got is myopia. Okay, well, you're fine. You can go to the vision plan. But if you look at that person, they're blurry and they've got, I don't know, three plus modeling in their macula, then you you can make that judgment call that really this belongs on your medical plan more than your vision plan. You know, and the documentation is what will determine that, how you document. They're both. And, and it, uh, the other day I made an example of a patient that comes in, let's say a 15-year-old comes into your office, and they're not wearing glasses, and they're having a ton of eye strain. And you find out that it's because they're a plus five. You know, they're they're terrifically hyperopic. You know, they're troping it in here. They've got all these problems. Technically, that plus five will fix it. In theory, you know, assuming they, they're not amblyopic, but, you know, does that take away the complaint of asthenopia that they walked in with? You know, for me, this is one of those scenarios where you can go either way. Yes, they have hyperopia. That is the diagnosis they have. But they also had asthenopia, which is a medical complaint. And then you can make that judgment call. You know, you get to decide, and that's the importance of documentation is that you get to make the decision. If you write broken glasses, your crappy documentation gets to make that decision for you. And if they've got a malignant melanoma, guess what? You just took on a malignant melanoma patient for a $50 Spectera reimbursement. Why? Because you wrote down broken glasses for no good reason. So, you know, so that's important. And other than that, you know, we all do thorough exams, and I think that's kind of the take home. You know, we're all, doing, we're all doing level four exams, mostly because the state requires it. I mean, everything that's in the, the state outlines of what constitutes an eye exam. You know, if they've got a medical diagnosis, it's a level four exam. So we're all doing these exams. Just write down what you normally do. That's it. Document the chief complaint properly, and then, diag- you know, you're going to write cataracts on your assessment.
1: Right. Whether
2: you get paid by Medicare or by IMED, you're still going to write cataracts.
0: Right. I'm curious, do you actually do this stuff by hand, or do you have software
2: do it for you? I use Practice Fusion. Mm -hmm. I've I've burned through a few different EMRs trying to get it right. My biggest issue is volume, because, I mean, I see 25 to 30 people a day pretty regularly, and I can't have something slow. Um, So Practice Fusion, for me, was a little cumbersome on the setup, but for me, it's all point-and-click now. You know, I write down the chief complaint, and then I just click, 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 fill in empirical values and, you know, then go to adding the diagnosis and that kind of thing. So I use the software, but you don't have to. I think that on that note, the insurers are getting to the point that they want you to, and I know Medicare wants you to. So I think it's it's probably easier if you do. So, you know, I would recommend going with an EMR. Sure. So,
0: and uh, I guess that's, uh, this leads into my next question. Then, so let's say that you've done all the documentation, everything's good to go. You know, mechanistically, how do you actually submit a claim to each one of these insurers? It sounds like a huge amount of work, since there are so many different companies.
2: Well, if you, if you do it the hard way, which is snail mailing in fifteen hundred forms to the companies, yeah, it stinks. It's a it's a tremendous amount of work, and and it's almost. Well, I say it's more trouble than it's worth. I'd I'd put up with a lot of trouble for seventy or eighty grand. But the easiest way to do it is to go through like an online portal. Vision Web is a really good one. They they will you'll submit the claim online to them, and then they'll disperse it to whoever the payer is. Um, But some of them have direct like Medicare has a has a program that you can file directly to them. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield in a lot of states, has a direct access. Um, you can use a portal like Availity, which is kind of like Vision Web, and it'll send out your claims for you and that kind of thing. Or you can just hire it out.
0: Right, and so I guess my question is, you do a huge volume right now. You see a lot of patients with the software mm-hmm. in place. Do you, can you actually do this yourself, or do you have to hire it out? What do you think is more, uh, more efficient?
2: Well, I use Practice Fusion, and with it, there's a clearinghouse called Carrio. And well, actually, it's sort of the intermediate to the clearinghouse. But you can submit the claim directly from the EMR. But all, and, and that's not a bump for practice use because they all do that. I mean, whether it's OfficeMate or uh, Mac Practice or Revolution or all that, they will all directly submit a claim for you, and they'll help you get set up with a clearinghouse. The only problem with with not having a biller is that then the onus is on you to keep up with what you don't get paid on and posting your payments and stuff. And, and I just don't have time to deal with that. I mean, honestly, I just, it's my biller charges me 7% of my collected amounts. So she only gets paid if I get paid. Well, her company, they only get paid if I get paid. So, you know, 7% to me, that's an acceptable loss because what I do is I do the exam, I code it, and then I've got uh, an, a portal where I just send her the claim, and then she populates it, sends it out, and ha- and then tracks it from that point on. And all of the insurers do electronic funds transfers. So basically, you send off the claim, and anywhere from two weeks to a month and a half, money just shows up in your account like magic. Right. And so, so this
0: biller, this biller doesn't actually have to be on site with you, right? You can do this sort of remotely as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I am six hours away from my biller right now. And she does everything remotely, but there, there's another one that was on OD wire. Oh, uh, I can't think of the name. Eh, anyway, um, it's a, is it a company and they, they were from, uh, from back East and it's the same deal. You know, you just submit it to them. You know, this is the age of electronics. It doesn't matter where you are. You can submit, you know, you can submit everything in my area. I mean, I go from, I cover a huge area. I mean, I go from about three and a half hours north to three hours south and five hours east, five hours west. I cover a big area. So I just, you know, I say at the end of the day, I send off all my claims to her. She populates it, sends it off. And then, you know, two weeks later I get money. So no, you don't have to have, and and actually that's the beauty of those folks too, because most practices won't have the volume to necessitate a $50,000 a year biller. So You know, most places will charge you a couple of ways. They'll either charge you by the volume of claims or on your collections. I prefer on collections because, then if I don't get paid, they don't get paid. Right.
1: And now the one controversial question on here that we haven't even approached. Uh Uh-oh. What do you think of the vision plans? Do you suggest that (laughs) they You don't have to answer this (laughs) one.
2: You know what? Honestly, I don't – you know, a vision plan is a tool. That's all it is. And and we get real worked up about it. And if you use them properly, they're fine. You know, they're fine. I, you know, I don't like low ball vision plans, but the reality is that most patients don't know that their medical insurance will pay for an eye exam. They have no idea. But if they get a vision plan, they'll come in like in droves. They'll come in for no damn good reason at all. But what, I'll, what I would recommend in terms of vision plans is call them out based on their attachment to medical plans. You know, don't just take some crappy vision plan that's all by itself and doesn't do anything. Like for me, I took Spectera and it kind of sucked, but it was attached to United Healthcare and that really didn't suck. And probably 60 to 70 percent of the patients that came in with Spectera would end up on their United Healthcare. Now, they would have never come in with just United Healthcare because they didn't know that they could get checked with that. So, you know, and plus, again, like I mentioned, you can always use it for just materials. You know, you can have a patient come in with their Aetna, you know, or come in because they have IMED, file their exam on Aetna for $150 versus $50, and then file their materials on IMED, and, it, you know, it's just kind of win-win. So that way they don't feel like they're wasting money on their vision plan. And they, you know, cause I've had this conversation with some, God, I feel really stupid for having this. No, don't feel stupid for that. You know, we're going to file your exam on United healthcare. That's true. But you know, you can go get a $400 pair of progressives for 50 bucks. Oh, well I feel a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I guess you do. Sure. So, and you,
0: well, you know, it's interesting with the affordable care act, this whole discussion may actually go away. This whole idea of standalone, I guess we don't really know yet.
2: You know, there's, there's no telling and that's that's what makes me nervous about VSP getting in here. For one thing, VSP for all of their paying an extra 20 bucks on the exam and being everybody's hero. The reality is they're in it for them and their future is very, very precarious. They're on thin ice, especially with the ACA, you know, and especially with all of these medical plans, including, you know, uh, you know, doctors figuring out that they can file exams on the medical plan. So, you know, I, I I honestly don't know. I don't want VSP in the middle of it because I don't want them selling any national care plan or any exchange like they did with Cigna. That hey, look, this is how it works, buddy. Why are you paying them 150 bucks? We pay them 70. They love it. Look at the numbers we have. So you pay us 90, we'll pay them 70. You save all this money. Just send all your optometrists to us. Everybody wins. Well, no, not everybody because we lose. You know, and the doctors that used to get 150 an exam for their Cigna patients, they're now getting 70 from VSP. So no, not everybody wins. Right. So it's okay, kind of a, well, kind of a picky issue there.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess we're, we're sort of running out of time here. Do you have any parting thoughts for us? Any final words for anyone who's looking to get into medical billing?
2: Yeah, it isn't hard. <laughs> it's don't, easy. Be in, don't be intimidated by the process. It's, you know, it's mildly complicated, but we're smart people. You don't get to be an optometrist without being smart. There aren't just a bunch of dumb optometrists running around. You know, so if you can get through optometry school, this is like nothing. And it's more than worth any time you invest in it. Right. Right. And also and, you... and, and then there's O.D. Wire. I mean, you've got, got 15,000 people, you know, 15,000 mentors out there that I didn't have. You know, I stumbled around and fumbled and learned by not getting paid, once again, the hard way, because that's how I roll. But, you know, people that are on OD wire don't have to do that. They can get on and they can ask all these questions. And, you know, you're not going to get beat up. You know, and you can always PM people if you're intimidated. So, But there's, there's lots and lots of help out there that, you know, we didn't have 10 years ago. So, so use the resources that are available to you.
0: Great. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I'm sure that this conversation is going to continue on OD Uh And we'll, we'll definitely hear from you there as well. And perhaps... We could come up with some sort of algorithms for folks as well who might feel a little bit intimidated still by this process, and we could put them sure. I'd on be happy
2: day. to. Yeah, I'd be happy to participate. However, you need me.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, and I guess we'll see you online. Okay, Steve.
1: Thank yes, you, you very you much. you See, see yes, you later. Sure. Have a good day. Roger. Bye. Bye.